Hello and welcome to the Around the Nation podcast for the week of Monday, November 19th, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now. Go to www.salemciviccenter.com for more information and uh, for more information about the 16 teams that remain alive on the road to Salem well you can listen to us for about approximately the next hour if somehow this is your first Around the Nation podcast over the uh, past seven years uh, I'm Pat Coleman I'm the executive editor of d3football.com and Keith McMillan is our Around the Nation columnist and our uh, deputy managing editor and our, our, um, our, our lifeline into you know everything that is analytical about Division Three football. We try to take a, lo- a look at what happened in the past week and what's coming up in the next week. And of course, this is a busy time of year for that. And I think, first of all, Keith, I think we really need to talk about what a great week it was. For example, for the College Conference of Illinois and Wisconsin. Yeah. Anytime you get two teams into the playoffs and your two teams are fortunate enough to not be matched up against each other in the first round, you have an opportunity to, to score big points for your conference and, and, and having them both advance. And only two conferences uh, were able to do that on Saturday, the, uh, the MIAC and the CCIW. But the, uh, one of the MIAC teams had the luxury of playing at home, which uh, neither CCIW team did. And it was quite impressive to see Elmhurst go on the road to co and win in uh, what was a pretty close game. And then uh, North Central flew out to California Lutheran and uh, won in what was not a pretty close game. And really at, at no point uh, was that game even close at all. And we thought that was probably one of the best matchups around one. No, that was the second play of the game. Uh, North Central ripped off a, a long two, uh, a long touchdown run to take the early lead there and it, it kind of just snowballed from there uh you know interesting about the cciw of course you know the 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 teams kind of beat up in each other a little bit this year plus north central had the early season loss to wisconsin lacrosse so therefore you know certainly north central didn't merit a first round home game at eight and two and elmhurst was kind of uh on the bubble they were uh for a, for a home game they were i guess a five seed uh, depending on who you might ask depending on whose version of the bracket you might look at. Um, they were playing on the road against a team that they could certainly handle uh, in in Co. Uh, so they had the opportunity. It, in fact, the CCAW really had the opportunity to prove itself more than any other conference did this weekend other than perhaps the NEFC. Yeah, and, and you're true. That conference had a chance and was, was at least a, at, by halftime was in both of those games, and uh, they weren't able to pull either of those games out. Each... each round in the playoffs is not you know it becomes about individual teams and not about the conferences uh, especially the further on you go but I think when you take a look at the big picture here in, in round one you know there, there weren't any major surprises um, there were certainly some games like Elmhurst Co like North Central Caluthorne that we thought would be uh, good games or were, were pretty intriguing matchups of teams that play different styles or what have you and um, the CCIW was was the one conference that came out you know, looking pretty good again because they, they got both their teams sent on the road. But um, I don't know if we can move them, you know, quite into top conference status yet because they're still beating teams from what you what, what in our conference rankings, what we would call lesser conferences. You know, we haven't seen a CCIW team beat an, uh, an OAC team yet. And, and right now, you know, Mount Union's the only one left. Uh, Mayak, Wyak. Um, American Southwest, you know, eventually to get that that top top conference respect, and you you want to send a team to Salem, you want to beat those other top conferences as we go on in the next few rounds here. But I thought that North Central especially proved that it would be very dangerous, and I, I was impressed with Elmhurst, um, you know, being able to get it done on the ground uh, against Co. You know, their their whole game revolves around Scotty Williams, and uh, they gave him 35 carries on Saturday at 196 yards. He had a big, uh, you know, 61-yard run early in the game and didn't score. And Elmhurst only came away with three points on that drive. And and you know, sometimes when you have a big early play and then you're not able to turn it into seven, it ends up being, uh, you know, the opposite of a momentum boost. Um, and and those points come back to bite you later. But that didn't happen in Elmhurst's case, and they had to protect the lead. You know, Elmhurst. Um, doesn't have a great defense. And, and so I, I thought one of the big things that, that was impressive about that game, too, is that even though Coe, um, you know, passed for more than 200 yards, rushed for more than 200 yards, when it counted, when Elmhurst needed to come up with some big stops 
on the road in a playoff game, they were able to do that. And uh, that's one of the reasons the CCIW was so impressive in round one. You know, what are the ways to just kind of get a picture or get a gauge of, you know, what is considered an upset? What's an expected outcome, perhaps? Uh, Even though, you know, the NCAA's only public acknowledgement of seeding is who they put at home in any particular game uh, at this point in time. Um, you know, there's certainly a, a couple of other things you can look at. We we put seedings on our uh, on our, our team capsules, the 32 team capsules. We basically go through, look at each team in the bracket, and seed them according to the NCAA's criteria. And you know, usually it seems to to work out. It it makes sense, and that's how they tend to determine home field in future games. Um, but one of the other things to look at, of course, obviously our top 25 doesn't weigh into how teams are selected, but it's certainly a great measurement. Of how uh, of how teams could perform, and then also you just if you have an opportunity to look at how people uh, who joined the uh, the bracket challenge uh, picked teams this week. For example, uh, you know North Central, a lower ranked team going on the road, going on a long trip on the road. To be honest with you, um, you know to a to a team that's a higher seed, and yet 56% of the people in the uh, in the bracketology picked uh, North Central to win. So you know, I know that uh, you and I were both in agreement there, and I, I think that, uh, you know, for me, anyway, um, Cal Lutheran was kind of overranked by the end of the season. They had earned it earlier in the year with a close game against Linfield and a win against Pacific Lutheran, but then they just really kind of fell apart defensively down the stretch. And uh, with all the other losses going on in Division Three, uh, Cal Lutheran only really dropped one spot from seventh to eighth, but they were uh, they were kind of in a tailspin at the end of the year, and we could really see that loss coming. Yeah, I mean, uh, both of us picked it, and you know, I I thought that it was it, it would have been a better matchup if Cal Lutheran had had the defense to match its offense. But when I when I took a look at this stuff for the Around the Nation column last week, there were uh, a handful of teams that came in to the playoffs with with some you know some kind of unbalance. Most playoff teams. You would assume good on defense, good on offense. Some teams are real exceptional on one side of the ball and just average on the other side of the ball. But there were very few teams that came into these playoffs with a a, uh, a, a sub 200 unit on one side and a, and a top five unit uh, on the other side. And Cal Lutheran in uh, in total yards this season they were fifth and uh, they were sixth in scoring offensively. And then defense they were they had the 201st ranked defense by yardage in the whole country out of, out of 239. And, you know, one of the reasons they were able to get in the playoffs is because they were only uh, 113th scoring defense. So I, I think, you know, probably a lot of those points came in games that they were ugly, but that was also part of the reason, Pat, as you alluded to, that we, we could see, you know, maybe a first-round upset or a first-round elimination coming for Cal Lutheran because um, the great teams really have a killer instinct. They put teams away and they keep their foot on the gas, you know, a, in, until it's all over. You know, you don't see them let let up. Maybe a one score at the end, but Cal Lutheran was letting teams, you know, get three and four and five scores, and, and they would have to continue scoring to, you know, to, to keep these margins. And so they would win, you know, you know, 60 to 30, 65, 38, or whatever the scores were during the season. But you kept seeing those kind of scores. And that the the problem with the matchup with North Central rather than some of the other teams that they, they could have been sent out to California in the first round is that North Central can score right you know right with Cal Lutheran and and when they're on and if you haven't seen that run game before you know we saw it happen in the first round last year North Central and Dubuque we thought that was going to be a, a offensive shootout and it was the same thing North Central jumped on top and uh, and, and it was never close. There was one game which was an upset if you look at the NCAA seedings. It was an upset if you look at the AFCA Top 25, but it was not an upset by uh, the D3Football.com Top 25, and 76% of the people in our uh, bracket challenge picked it correctly. That is Bethel going down to Concordia, Chicago, and coming away with a what turned out to be a nail-biting win, a, a game that was even closer than than we expected. And even though the... Uh, the AFCA had this game as uh, 18th ranked Concordia and 23rd ranked Bethel, and we had uh, Bethel ranked and Concordia unranked. Um, you know, even though Concordia Chicago lost this game, Keith, I think they uh, they performed pretty well and and uh, um, and served the Northern Athletics Conference pretty well in that game. I, I would definitely agree with that point, Pat. This is a game that Concordia Chicago chose to go for two, and they could have uh, kicked a extra point 
and uh, tried to play overtime. They chose to go for two and uh, and, and failed. You know, they, it was basically a fade pattern, and uh, it was broken up. And uh, so they end up losing 24-23. But they came from behind in that game. They drove down to score in the final minute, I believe. I believe it was inside a minute when they scored. 18 and, seconds, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so – and this is one of the one of those – this was at the point. It was this, you know, the second wave of games, the the one o'clock wave. So there was only, there was um, five games ending around the same time, rather than nine from the from the twelve o'clock wave. But um, it was the one where if you were watching something else online, if you if you are in front of a computer on Saturday like I was instead of at a game, um, switched over to that to to see that final. Uh, you know, sequence where Concordia scored, where they, uh, you know, went for two because it was, you know, probably one of the most exciting finishes uh, of the first round, if not the most exciting finish. And I think to get back to what you were saying, Pat, absolutely, Concordia um, earn respect for their conference. I think you earn a little bit more respect if if you pull that game out and you win and then you get a chance to play again the next week and, and earn further respect. But uh, you, you can't ask for much more f- from from a team playing a top-notch team from one of the top conferences in the country to be able to to have a chance to win in the final minute uh, of that game. So I, I thought Concordia, Chicago, and I thought Framingham State was the other one from a weak conference that that really played well against a, a fairly strong team and had a chance to win and ended up losing by one. And, and we'll continue to talk about, uh, or we'll go back to Framingham State in a little bit. Um, you know, Keith, we were following that game pretty closely. I was in the press box at St. Thomas in a game that had uh, been out of hand for a while. Uh, we were following that game closely and the Elmhurst Co. game closely because Elmhurst and Co. winner was going to come to St. Thomas. And obviously, if Bethel held on to win that game, that was a feather in the cap of the MIAC and of, of interest to people at St. Thomas. But, um, you know, not able to watch that game. I can only pretty much watch on live stats and Twitter when I'm at another game. But uh, did you watch the final minute of that game? Uh, yeah, I did get a chance to watch. I don't I don't I got over there, I think, just in time to see the touchdown and then the two point conversion play. So we're talking about, you know, Bethel, whose season has already been kind of defined by one two-point conversion to begin with, and then has an opportunity to uh, to define itself again or to be knocked out by one. Yeah, and I thought it would have been, I used the word on Twitter, poetic justice. I guess the words, the phrase, poetic justice. And maybe it wouldn't have been justice, but it would have been poetic in a sense if Bethel's season uh, you know, Bethel, the only reason they're in these playoffs instead of Concordia Moorhead is because they were able to score in the final seconds of a game and uh, hit a two-point conversion to win it in a, a game where they could have just kicked the extra point, played for overtime. So similar situation happened, except this time Bethel was on defense and Concordia, you know, you could, I mean, you could feel even just over, um, just watching it, not even being in in the uh, stadium, you could feel the, the tension of, of, uh, Oh my! Oh my gosh! They're gonna go for it here. They're gonna go for the win, you know. And, and it was—it's such a big deal for a a, a, a program that's not uh, used to being in the playoffs and having playoff success. That a program that's on the rise, you know, and one that probably in the next few years here we're going to continue to take note of, take take notice of, and maybe they'll be, you know, go on to uh, to to represent the the Northern Athletics Conference um, in a playoff win someday. But but you know, at that point, at that moment, there's. You know, there's two schools of thought on, on that moment. You know, do you go for it all? And, and I, I think as fans, we all love to see somebody uh, go for it. But the problem is it's high, it's high reward, high risk. And, uh, and the risk is that if you don't hit it, you, uh, you lose the game and you don't get a chance to play again next week. And so that was, uh, again, that's what happened with Concordia Chicago. They, they didn't have a, you know, a brilliant play drawn up or anything like that. They just took a shot uh, in the corner of the end zone. I was, uh, I was concerned about I wasn't concerned about that, but I found it interesting uh, that as that game started, uh, the early line on uh, on Jake Kohler at one point he was uh, it was I think 0 for three with an interception, and at one point I think it was two for six with two picks. Uh, for them to come back and and get back into that game is pretty impressive. But then, you know, they're gonna we're we're talking about whether they uh, continue to be. Uh, a factor it, it, at this level in the future years. Obviously, they'll have a they'll have a new quarterback to uh, to break in as well. Yeah, and you know the other thing about this matchup too is it was the unlike the other eight and two teams that got in Pacific Lutheran and Louisiana College, um, who who were you know finished second to dominant teams. Bethel didn't get sent to St. Thomas, and and you know that's more of a function of geography than the way the selection committee would prefer to do it. Um, 
So Bethel got this matchup. They still had to go on the road, but they and on the road to a 10 and 0 team, a conference champion. But they went on a road to a team that um, we you know we perceived that they were stronger than. And so even though Bethel was on the road, they were in a lot of people's minds the favorite. Obviously, the the number of people who made the picks in the uh, in the bracket contest on, on D3 football, you know, they they were they were in agreement with us. And so it, it's a very rare, unique situation where you have a pool C team on the road, but kind of the in our a lot of people's mind the favorite in that game and it played out that you had the home team obviously had some advantage in in the uh the Bethel you know they were able to 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 win they were really um they're one of two pool C teams to win Elmhurst we already talked about was the other and then uh, they were they were one of five teams to go on the road on Saturday that won and, and we've talked about two, three of them now in Bethel North Central and Elmhurst Let's go back to the NEFC for a minute. Uh, you mentioned, of course, it was, that's correct at half. Uh, those games looked pretty good, uh, especially uh, Widener and Bridgewater State tied. It didn't end up that way um, by a significant margin, but the uh, Cortland State-Framingham State game was a nail-biter down to the final minute. And the, the tough thing about that game for, for Framingham State is they got back into that game when they were down six and were able to, to at a point where it was um, – 20 to 13 they scored a touchdown and and they were they missed the extra point and so it was 20 to 19 and then Cortland still got the ball back but Cortland had to had to uh they went for it on fourth and one with a minute 27 left and they had to convert that fourth and one with a two-yard quarterback sneak to be able to run the clock out and in the same vein as as Concordia Chicago and really a lot of other teams that that didn't represent their conferences so well on Saturday and and we'll talk about you know USA South and ECFC and uh and maybe Midwest Conference you know their teams didn't didn't do so hot you know the the two Nefsi teams I thought held up pretty well having to go on the road um Framingham State had been a team pretty much since their their early in their season that had been a great defense and so uh, Cortland State had been a great offense, and so it was it was a, a matchup of styles. But you never know when when you're talking about a fairly strong conference and a fairly weak conference within D3 how the 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 strong unit and the other strong unit are really going to match up. And that turned out to be a, a great game. Um, Framingham got uh, two touchdowns in, in the second half from Malik Van Alstyne, their best player, and um, they, you know they they missed. Uh, there was a missed field goal in the fourth quarter. Uh, there was so much, you know, back and forth in that game, and it's a shame that that a missed extra point was the thing that decided it. Because I think the uh, the Nefsi really would have loved to have a, a a victory on Saturday in one of those two games because they were under a lot of scrutiny for for getting a Pool C team in. And uh, you know, if it's Pool A team had won, they would at least have that to hang their hat on. You know, um. I I would argue that Bridgewater State kind of just did what we expected him to do. I mean, the the um, the final score is the one that matters, and it ends up being 44-14. And I know obviously that uh, you know Widener gets a, a pick six at the end to make it uh, 44 instead of 38. But you know, I'm not sure that there's that big a difference. I think uh, you're you're not expected to go on the road to beat Widener. Uh, you know, Widener's a top ten team. Um, I just I I wonder if uh, you know the fact that it was close at one point. Does that actually make a difference? And I'm not sure it necessarily does. Yeah, I think the thing you take away when you get a chance to watch a a good portion of that game, as I did, is is the I do these teams look completely mismatched, or do are they both you know they're both playing equally hard, equally well? And you know Widener was a little sloppy in the first half. There's no doubt about that. Uh, penalties and uh, and turnovers in the first half were part of the reason that game was tied at seven at the half. But I thought too there was a a, por- a point in that game where um, Bridgewater State got down to the ten yard line and, and uh, Widener State Widener started to to hold up, you know, putting up a goal line stand. And Bridgewater was able to they ran the ball a couple times, just powered right before the half and that's the type of thing when you you know you're just looking at the strength literal strength of the two teams because you know you sometimes assume a strong conference is, is recruiting better athletes and has literally stronger players uh you know i thought bridgewater state held up well in, in that sense but why that team has been offensively all year a juggernaut and there was just only so long they'll be able to keep them off the board i don't think um you know holding that team to seven points and a half is an accomplishment. Pat, you're right. As you said, the final score is the one that matters. And for a team that that uh, 
was right up there with Mount Union in, in scoring offense this season. Uh, you, you weren't going to hold them to 14 points over the course of a game. You know, that second half, they were going to put some points on the board. And uh, they had really a couple of outstanding plays. Uh, had a great punt return that ended up coming back. And then they followed that up with, a, you know, uh, one of those amazing catches where Bridgewater State safety uh, came over and got his hands on the ball and then and then uh, dropped it. It looked like it was going to be a pass breakup and the wide receiver was right there underneath it, laying on the ground and caught it. And, you know, those when those things start happening and you're already the, the least the less talented team of the two, I think it, uh, it, it you know, the ball starts rolling. And I, I, I don't think even in this week's matchup coming up that Salisbury can hope to, you know, keep Widener off the board at quite as long as even Bridgewater State did. I think it's going to be awful tough to, to hold Widener to below 30 points, you know, so Salisbury's going to have to score with him. And, and I think, you know, if it goes down even further than that, if Widener plays Mount Union, then you have a matchup of great offense versus great defense. We've spent about 20 minutes on this podcast and we haven't even really mentioned Wittenberg-Heidelberg. What a great game that was. It was a, a game in which... Uh, again, if we talk about uh, what the score was at half, it was not really at all indicative of how the game ended. Uh, Heidelberg jumped out to a big lead. And, and Wittenberg, Keith, here's the thing that, it, that uh, impresses me, I think, the most about this. We've talked uh, multiple times about how Wittenberg has really struggled on the road over the last couple of years. Um, Wittenberg hasn't beaten an Ohio Athletic Conference team in the playoffs since the 70s when Wittenberg was in the conference. Um, and, you know, they just uh, – they. And, and to be honest with you, you know, the OAC runner-up doesn't tend to lose to teams other than Mount Union in the playoffs very often. It's happened more often in the last five or so years than it used to, but, you know, it's still uh, a fairly rare occurrence. And Wittenberg comes back, scores uh, 39 out of uh, uh, 39 unanswered, I think, and, and just kind of really takes control of that game in the second half to go on to win 52-38. I, I, one of the things that really impressed me about that game, too, is um, when you go back and read the things that Wittenberg was saying, you know, they were res- respected the fact that Heidelberg had jumped on them. And uh, Heidelberg, you know, you mentioned at one point had led this game 21 to three. Uh, they led 38-13 or 31-13 at, at one point in the game. And uh, the thing that Wittenberg was saying was that we felt like we, if we could just get in an offensive rhythm, that we'd have a chance. And so the, the defense, even though they'd, they'd given up a bunch of points, they said, look, we're, we're, you know, we're starting to figure them out. And if you just give us a chance, we will make something happen. And that's what every coach says. You know? But you have to say it and the kids have to really buy into it and go out there and execute it. And you know, the, the fact that Wittenberg did that, it's amazing. Pat, you've been to games, I know. I've been you know, to games, played in games like this, where the lead gets big early, and then the other team starts coming back. And that momentum, the pressure of, of not wanting to give up that lead, it almost puts the team that's ahead in the worst position unless they can somehow stem the tide, make some kind of play to stop that momentum. And it's amazing the way football has these swings back and forth. And, and, you know, once Wittenberg got going, they actually came back and took the lead. Then Heidelberg finally scored again uh, when they fell down two touchdowns. And so it was still a seven-point game, and Heidelberg is driving uh, at the end of the game as across midfield, comes to a fourth-and-ten situation. And it was, um, why his name just, Heath Eby, who uh, picked off the pass, ran it back 60 yards for the touchdown. And that's what, that you know, the great photo that we have uh, leading the roundup and, and all over d3football.com this week uh, of, you know, the elation, the, um, you know, fi- finally is kind of what he's saying as he crosses the goal line there you know, with, that, with that interception return touchdown because that was a game, you know, it was back and forth. And uh, w- when you're in a game, the emotions of, of that comeback, it's tough no matter which side you're on. Uh, the, one of the games that comes to mind when we're talking about uh, great playoff comebacks, I think of uh, Bridgewater coming back on W&J in the 2000 playoffs, a really cold day in Washington, PA. Do you remember that game? We, not, that, not that we were there, but I remember that being a pretty significant comeback. Yeah, and that, was a, that turned Bridgewater's program around. You know, because at that time, Washington Jefferson was the dominant program in the South region. Uh, them and, and maybe Trinity of Texas and Bridgewater was just a young upstart and and Bridgewater went on in those you know playoffs in the subsequent years to have you know a great run and maybe this is the the first step for Wittenberg I think of all the teams that are moving on you know Wittenberg 
has one of the the winnable second round games for an underdog in the sense that they didn't they're not going to Mount Union, Mary Harden Baylor, Linfield, Wesley, St. Thomas in in the second round. They're going to Hobart, which is a great team, but not one of the elite dominant teams of, of Division three. And so they have a chance in round two to to turn this take this momentum from the second half of round one and turn it into a great memorable run in Wittenberg history. And if you go back far enough, Wittenberg does have a, a very storied Division three history. Um, I believe still the most winning, the winningest program in, in D3 history, but hadn't had a, a great playoff win like that in quite, a, quite some time. A couple of conferences, as we mentioned earlier, that had, uh, that had to have rematches in the first round of the NCAA playoffs. Uh, that is a, a geographical thing uh, forced by NCAA budgetary restraints. And because of that, uh, we were, well, we were kind of treated to uh, Louisiana College, Mary Harden Baylor replaying the second half of their first meeting and playing it twice. And then we had a, a, a great game between Linfield and Pacific Lutheran in the, uh, in the, what was the final game of the afternoon? Yeah, the, uh, the, 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 ASC rematch was completely unlike the first half of that first game. Remember, Mary Harden Baylor had to block a kick and take it all the way back to even get on the board in the first half of their matchup against Louisiana College. This time, they couldn't stop getting on the board. 42 points in the first half of that game. Louisiana College really never got a chance um, you know, to get going. And, and so their first playoff experience was a, was a very uh, raw playoff experience. But for Linfield and Pacific Lutheran, that game wasn't over in, until the final minute. And even... You know, it was a rainy day. It was a sloppy game in some ways. And, uh, you know, e e even for Linfield, as well as they had played at, at points in that game defensively, they had six sacks. They they still needed to hold off the, the very last play um, and to keep Pacific Lutheran out of field goal range. And, and Pacific Lutheran doesn't have a great kicking game anyway. So they were they were uh, maybe driving for, for a winning touchdown as well as maybe a shot at that field goal. Yeah, in looking through the criteria, we pegged Louisiana College as the fifth seed in that bracket. Um, you could make a um, you could make an argument that perhaps they might be the sixth seed, but if they were the fifth seed, they play in a perfect bracket. Play at Adrian. If they're a sixth seed, they play at Cortland State. And neither of uh, neither of those teams look particularly good on Saturday. I think it's fairly easy to uh, to picture Louisiana College beating either of those teams. Sure, and and that's what happens with the way the brackets are set up, you're not going to get, first of all, you're not going to get the 32 strongest teams in the country in the field due to the, uh, the automatic qualifier. And, and I, then, you know, and, and, and sorry, Keith, but it, it surprises me how many people don't understand that fact, how, how it's, it's, this is the same as any other NCAA tournament. And I don't understand why people look at a, a bracket and don't understand why uh, someone got into the field. I mean, clearly there are automatic bids. I mean, there are 16 and 12 teams in the, uh, in the NCAA tournament, that's 16, and 12, that's not enough games, but you get these 16 and 15 teams in the division one men's basketball tournament on a fairly regular basis. Why is this such a shock to people? I don't know. I mean, Duke plays long Island. Yeah. You know, Kentucky plays Texas at Arlington, right? It's one, they're one sixteen games in every tournament. There's mismatches in every tournament. It, it does happen that way. And maybe it, the people's mindset just isn't configured, I guess, for football the same way it is in basketball because they're not used to football tournaments. You and I are used to it because we follow this every year. And, and, and we get used to the idea of the quirks that the, the tournament field has. You know, I wouldn't even necessarily call that a quirk for what it's worth. True. Quirk, quirks, quirks are these geographical rematches. That, uh, that, that, yeah, you're right. But the it's normal for uh, for the you know the number one seeds to play weak teams. It's um, it's normal in D three for the seeds to not match up perfectly for geographic reasons. And I think it's normal for you don't necessarily get the 16 strongest teams playing the 16 weakest teams in in the first round of the bracket because the, the way the brackets match up. And it, it's tough because you're right, there is a handful of teams that Louisiana College could have beaten. Um, but we would say the same thing about some of the teams that didn't even get in. You know, we Wheaton, Concordia-Moorhead, Wabash. Yeah. There, there was, I, I'm, I was trying to think of the, the other 8-2 and two team that, that we're um, agonizing about last week. But it's last week's news point. You know, they would beat Mount Ida, right? They, they You know, they would... Probably oh, sure. beating some of the. Oh, no doubt. My point in talking about Louisiana College is not to talk about. Obviously, they would beat some of the uh, automatic bids at the bottom of the conference or at the bottom of the bracket. But I'm more talking about the teams that 
they should have been matched up against if the bracket were laid out according to seeding. Right, but it, but no bracket is laid out perfectly is, is what I was getting at. No, you don't get the 16 strongest necessarily against the 16 weakest. You use the games to determine who the 16 strongest and weakest are. You know, and, and the only thing that's absolute is the, the winners on Saturday and the losers on Saturday. No uh, teams outside of the, our top 25 advanced. Uh, as you mentioned, five road teams advanced. So that's uh, five instances in which the uh, NCA seeding didn't necessarily match the, the strength of competitors on the field. And not that that's necessarily uh, a surprise either. I think you, know, you and I probably correctly picked uh, at least three of those, if not uh, four in some cases. And we'll have to get to talk to one of, about one of those in a second. Neither of us, none of us picked uh, Heidelberg to lose to Wittenberg. Um, but we all uh, kind of thought that that was at least a possibility because we all picked close scores. None of us thought that Franklin would just blow the doors off of Adrian. Although, to be honest with you, one of the things we've said about Franklin for quite a while now is that it was really hard to tell how good they were because the Heartland Conference is so poor. And, you know, their out-of-conference games were against the number one team in the country and a uh, Division One FCS school. Non-scholarship, but a pretty good one at that. Right. There was this big range... That, that Franklin could be. Are they very good? Are they just a, a team good enough to win its conference and get bounced in the first round? They got a matchup in round one where probably most years we would have said Franklin because they're the historically um, strong playoff team. We, we would Most years we would have favored them, but Adrian is coming off this game where they went down to Huntingdon, knocked Huntingdon out of the playoff picture, and and looked you know defensively strong in doing so, holding this high-powered Huntingdon team to, to 16 points. Uh, that swayed me, certainly. Adrian is at home. Franklin had to had to you know travel from Indiana to Michigan for that, which is uh you know not a not a long trip at all. But it's um it, it's being on the road. It's not being with your fans uh, and all that. You know. So I, I thought we looked at a bunch of games, Pat, on Saturday. What you'd call four or five games or three six games or in our case four six or three five games. Um, there was probably six or seven games that we thought would be pretty. Close, you know, there's the games you expect to be blowouts, and then there's the, you know, maybe even more than six or seven, but, you know, your Salisbury Rowan, your Wittenberg, Heidelberg, um, Elmhurst Co., those games like that. I, we thought Franklin and Adrian, or I thought Franklin and Adrian would be right in that group, and I thought it would have a score more like the Elmhurst Co. game that came down. You know, either team could have won at the end, and it, it was really all Franklin, not from the complete outset, but they, uh, Grizzlies had a 28-point uh, second quarter and and really never looked back, and and Adrian was one of the great defenses coming into this tournament, so that uh, seeing Franklin put those those points up in the second quarter was a big deal. So Franklin's a team that has played uh, they've played Whitewater in the playoffs, they've played Whitewater in the regular season, they played Mountain Union in the regular season, and so you know just in case they haven't had enough of some of the best programs in the country, now they're going to go down and uh, play Mary Harden Baylor on Saturday. And this is where the bracket gets a little weird. And you know some years we would they the committee would have just grouped north with north, south with south. And, and that would be the end of it. But because the brackets got mixed up, I, I think it gives us some opportunities to play, to see some different teams. And, and Franklin, as you mentioned, they don't need the opportunity to see any more teams. You know, all they need to see now is, is to play Wesley, and, and they will have played all the, you know, the four most dominant programs of the past five or ten years um, in the past, you know, 12 games or whatever, because they played Whitewater uh, early last season and knocked out of the playoffs by Whitewater last season, opened up this year with Mountain Union, and now they go down to Mary Harden-Baylor. So maybe, you know, we're going to lose our spots as the experts of seeing elite football because uh, Mike Leonard and his crew will now have, have seen it up close and personal. <laughs> you know, and, and that's that's what I like about the way the bracket has gone the last couple of years is that, you know, this is an instance where somebody has to fly to go play Mary Harden-Baylor. Why does it have to be a South Region team? You know, they've, they've taken somebody out of a, a different part of the country who's not any farther or closer than, uh, you know, than than the rest of the South region is to Texas because Texas is obviously quite isolated from the rest of uh, Division Three football. Uh, they've uh, they've really put um, kind of a nice little wrinkle in this bracket, and Franklin is the one that's going to, I guess, take advantage. Maybe that's not the quite the right word to use, but they're the one that gets to go. They get an opportunity. That's really the word we should say. You ha they have an opportunity to do something special for their program. It's, it's a big challenge. But a lot of teams got big challenges this Saturday coming up. That's what the second round of the playoffs is about. A big challenge for Johns Hopkins. You know, a big challenge for uh, for North Central to go out to Linfield. There's going to be a bunch of those. And 
I think, Pat, you're right, the, the chance to get a different challenge for your team, the chance for us as fans and, and, and those of us who, who follow us for some kind of living is um, it's unique to, to be able to, to, to watch you know, Franklin get an opportunity to go to Mary Harden Baylor. I think uh, Wittenberg Hobart is another one. Two teams that would never, and they've never played in the, in their history. It would never cross paths for any other reason, but they're within that 500 mile radius. So Wittenberg can take a bus up to the Finger Lakes and and, and play Hobart in the playoffs. I, I think we got a, a couple of matchups like that that are that are going to be pretty fun this week. And we talk about uh, Hobart as a team that uh, that beat Washington and Lee. Um, you know, we we talked I think earlier uh, in a, last week about how many option teams Hobart had already seen this season, and it didn't seem like Hobart had much difficulty with WNL after the initial flurry of uh, activity. Well, you know, that was a, another game that was pretty good in the first half. Uh, Hobart scored just before the half uh, to make it 21-14, and the, you know, the real standout stat from, from that is WNL comes in as the number one rushing team, not just in the postseason, but in the country this season. Uh, Luke Hines and the great... Um, running back slash extra point kicker for uh for Washington Lee. Um you know he got he got had a touchdown but he didn't really get his yards and and Hobart had the great defense and that defense emerged maybe a little more in the second half than in the first but uh was able to figure out Washington Lee and control them and uh that that Hobart offense uh really excelled had two two great two running backs had big days for Hobart and they uh, ended up pulling out the uh 38-20 victory. Um Obviously, there are some blowouts we haven't talked about yet. Um, you know, there are some close games we haven't talked about yet. I, I was impressed by how Rowan hung in the game uh, and, and, was, uh, and was really competitive against Salisbury, considering they lost their senior quarterback to injury uh, before the game started. Yeah, well, yeah. Rowan you know, it came out to us, at least, during the week that Louis Bianchini wasn't going to be able to play for them. They were going to turn to a freshman quarterback to start the game. And that game, even though it was a 17-9 final, it was a 10-9 game for a good majority of the fourth quarter. And, you know, so Rowan hangs in this thing defensively. They gave up a a early touchdown drive to Salisbury uh, in the first five minutes of that game. Nine-play, 84-yard drive. Joe Benedetti scores from 16 yards out, 7-0. Rowan turns around uh, later in the quarter on a 16-play drive. Uh, actually, turn around right after that score and go seven, seven minutes, 16 plays, 7-6. And then it's just a defensive game from that point on. You know, each team scores in, in the first quarter, and then they're, they're just you know, banging heads the rest of the way. And I think, you know, for a team that um, – doesn't have its, its, you know, maybe its leader, maybe its best player. If they don't have your, your star quarterback out there, you have to turn it into that kind of game. And you have to give Rowan a lot of credit. One of the more impressive teams that didn't win on Saturday um, because they hold, they, they hold Salisbury to 289 yards, which uh, that's not like holding the team to 100 and something yards, you know, as some teams in the playoff did. But Salisbury, if, if you haven't seen that thing up close and personal before, the way they run the option, um, you know, to, to – hold them to only uh you know 4.8 yards per play yeah. 4. 4.1 yards per rush that's that's actually good you know against Salisbury and, and Rowan gave himself a chance to win that game uh and, and they just weren't able to pull it out but it, you, you have to give them a little credit I think because they play without their uh, their quarterback you know Keith um I you probably know this answer because you know you and I are supposed to know these sorts of things but how long has it been? When was the last Rowan playoff game before Saturday? Oh five, oh six. It's been that long. They've been out of the playoffs for that long, and it doesn't. It doesn't really seem like it. Well, they did have one good year where they got stuck on the bubble. That they were uh, Rowan, Pacific Lutheran, and Redlands. I think were the teams stuck on the bubble the year there were nine one-loss teams uh, for six pool pool C spots. And that year there was no good way to do that. You know, if Rowan would have got in, Co would have got left out. Everybody was deserving that year, and they just couldn't squeeze them all in. Uh, so you know, Rowan. Uh, has had good years in between 06 and now and, and just hadn't been able to squeeze into the playoffs. And uh, in a different year, they might have got left out this year too, you know, because uh, they, they lost to Cortland State. They had the early season, uh, you know, out of division loss, but they ended up getting an opportunity. And uh, that was one of the games that was, you know, for a pool C team and a road team, that was a winnable game for them in the first round. And uh, Rowan wasn't able to pull it off and sets up what I think could be a really sweet offensive shootout 
in the second round in uh, Salisbury and Widener. Yeah, you know, and the thing that uh, I know we've talked about this before, but by the time you get to podcast uh, number 12, uh, we're going to repeat some things about teams that are still sticking around. The thing is that uh, Salisbury has has not been nearly as impressive this year on offense as it was last year. No, and, and there was a stats on Twitter. It was maybe yards per game or something like that, but it, it was very it was a very big difference between how they were offensively last year, like you said, and uh, and this season. And they really, you know, they weren't that impressive offensively on on Saturday, but uh, and they have the potential to put up all kinds of numbers. You know, are they going to be the team that scores sixty three on Utica? Are they going to be the team that that you know score twenty one on Ithaca? You don't you know, I mean, Widener is is maybe a cut above either of those teams because they're they're uh, unbeaten team in the playoffs here. But Widener's good defensively, but they're not great, and I don't know if they've seen anything like like Salisbury this year. So we'll find out, you know, and that's the beauty of the playoffs. And that, that I think Widener, Salisbury, and Hobart, Wittenberg are the two matchups in the second round where you have. Two teams that managed to to not get stuck playing a, a super dominant a a team with a lot of history or a top five team, you know, I guess Bethel Oshkosh, you could make an argument either way for that one. But uh, Widener and Salisbury have a chance to to really write some new history for their program. You know, both the programs have been to the quarterfinals before, but um, but uh, not recently. And so, well, Salisbury's been recently, but Widener hasn't been in several years and uh this is a big opportunity for them yeah um if you if you go really far back widener's won a national championship and salisbury has uh, has played at that level in the past but that is uh significantly far past um washington and jefferson's uh season comes to an end johns hopkins gets a chance to uh to to win a first round playoff game you know these are uh two conferences that are both uh, below 500 in terms of uh, playoff historical success since we started uh, going to automatic bids. Uh, and the Centennial in particular has really struggled in the playoffs that they managed to pick up a win on Saturday. And way to exercise the demons of, of last season when Johns Hopkins lost at home, St. John Fisher, in a, in a playoff game that was you know plenty winnable for that team and, and a team that had a Gallardi Trophy finalist at quarterback or you know top 10 finalist. And... Um, you know, Saturday, they just jumped all over Washington and Jefferson. And, you know, to be honest, the presidents weren't the most talented team in the field. They were eight and two. They got in by beating Waynesburg in week 11. But they had the the the, the inspiration, I guess, that that no other team really had. And, you, you know, you can't manufacture that. But at the same time, sometimes the the the, the, the talent just doesn't match up. And Johns Hopkins, one thing that they are is uh, just fast. They're fast, you know. Jonathan Rigaud, running back, is fast. They got they got speedy guys on the uh, on the flanks, and then they got a fast line, you know. And that's not you don't very often um, describe your line as fast. Maybe quick is the better word for it, but they're quick off the ball. They cause trouble in the backfield, and so uh, W and J, you know, wasn't able to get anything going offensively. And Johns Hopkins was able to get its running game going. And if they can run the ball, uh, they're a lot of trouble. I know you saw Johns Hopkins play back at the beginning of the season. Uh, what I remember about Johns Hopkins from 2012 that impressed me uh, was their size, a size that doesn't necessarily uh, correlate with what we tend to see from a Centennial Conference team. Did that, did that uh, come back around this year as well? You know, they, uh, yeah, they're, they're pretty decent, as I, I think, front and, uh, you know, especially on, on their, their offensive line. I think their defensive line is more quick than big. But um, the, thing, the thing about them is, is getting that running game going you know, because they, they've had games where they've, you know, run for over 300 yards as a team. And, and you know, I think they did a good job, too, of, of not letting Washington Jefferson get anything rolling because that, that's a team that's, you know, obviously playing with, you know, heavy hearts and playing for, for a, a special reason. And if they get into a game in the third or fourth quarter when all it is is who, who can dig deeper, you know Washington Jefferson is going to be able to dig deeper. And, and uh, John Hopkins was able to, uh, to, you know, to make out a 28-3 game, I think, at the half. You know, at some point, I only peeked into that game one time. And uh, it, it was right at, right as Rigaud was scoring a touchdown to make it. To, it, was, it was either twenty eight three or twenty eight ten, and it wasn't uh, it, it, you know it wasn't a whole lot to look at. 
to be quite honest, as far as all these other first round games uh, going on. And that one got out of hand early. And we're left with uh, the power teams in Division Three blowing out uh, opponents as they are, uh, as we expect them to do in the first round. Uh, the first thing that really struck me was uh, of these games, uh, Saint Scholastica got on the board first last year, uh, scoring a, on a safety 14 seconds into the game, and then lost to uh, Saint Thomas 48 to two. This time, Saint Scholastica scored the first 10 points of the game, and Wisconsin Oshkosh scored the last 55. And I almost felt like Wisconsin Oshkosh, because they'd gotten down 10 and uh, had, had caused themselves a little trouble, that they were making absolutely sure that everybody knew this team was still a juggernaut. You know, they, I mean, they were scoring in quickly and in bunches. And, and, and you know, when you peeked in, when I peeked in on that game, they were running players over. And uh, it's already a unique offense, tough to stop. There's a lot of motion. Uh, they have a great quarterback. So, you know, Oshkosh is already, you know they're going to put points on the board, but I thought they picked it up defensively um, and didn't let St. Scholastica take that 10-0 lead and believe that it really had a chance to win because in all honesty, they should be uh, should be somewhat of a mismatch and, and Oshkosh proved without a shadow of a doubt that, that it was and that the 10 points were sort of just, a, if not a fluke, just a, uh, you know, a bad stretch of game for them and it's something that they, they can't afford to do against Bethel or if, or if they go any further. But you know, they made very, very clear that, uh, that, that they weren't messing around after that 10-point uh, deficit. Nate Ware actually finished uh, under 50% uh, completions. He was 11 of 23, uh, was picked off once through three touchdowns, but he ran for 128 yards. That's his highest running total this season. We haven't seen him run as much this year as he has in the past, and I'm sure part of that is because he's got uh, Cole Myra there to, uh, to take a big part of that load. But you know, it's it's um, it's it's uh, from what we've uh, from what we've read, and if you haven't read the feature story on Nate Wera on the front page uh, right now, you could go f- feel free to take a, a per- peruse through that at your uh, at your leisure, or any of the other you know thousands of stories on the site. But specifically that one because it talks about uh, where is maturity. Where's you know the last time I saw him. Uh, in person was when he was a sophomore, and it, he was a, a bit of a different player back then. I'm going to go to Oshkosh on Saturday to get another uh, another look at him and see what I hope might be a, a pretty interesting game. But he's definitely changed, and sounds like he's matured a little bit as a quarterback. And, and part of that maturity is when you get to a point in a game where things aren't going well and the younger players on your team or the less experienced guys on your team have a tendency to panic or to press. And sometimes you can try so hard to, to catch up and get those 10 points back right away. Uh, you don't do the things you're coached to do, and you end up making more mistakes. And to have a guy at the controls who can say, relax, we got this, and, and exude that confidence is, uh, is a very big deal. It, you know, We saw it at, uh, at Whitewater, and it's mentioned in that story too, Pat, where you know, Oshkosh jumps out to the big lead, but you know Whitewater is going to make a run. And they started to come back in the third quarter of that game, and then there was a big drive that, that Oshkosh put together to, to, to sort of end the threat in that one. Same, you know, same thing here, not the exact same thing, but a similar thing here. When they get down, put together a couple of uh, quick uh, touchdown drives and then build on that, to that so that there was really never any doubt. Moving on to uh, one of the other blowouts, I was at the St. Thomas-St. Norbert game. Uh, St. Thomas won 48-17. Yeah, the interesting thing about this game to me is that how St. Thomas continues to have some success in the passing game considering they have uh, you know, basically no experience at receiver right now. These are guys who are freshmen and sophomores, but mostly freshmen. Uh, Matt Mizowitz is a freshman. He's was, uh, was their leading receiver. Pete Fitzsimmons has just a little bit of experience. Jack Gilliland. Uh, Matt Allen, who's like the second or third string tight end. Uh, Logan Marks was not very involved in the passing game. He's a, a senior tight end for them because um, you know, they've got guys hurt. Dan Nearing's been hurt. Uh, uh, Ferrazzo's been hurt. This is a team that is and hasn't been great in the running game this season either, but uh, the defense has been so dominant for them that uh, they continue to have some success. Yeah, there are a couple of teams like that too left in this postseason that have really great defenses and that are going to have to lean on them in, in the next few weeks here. Uh, you know, I think Wesley's probably another team like that, that that doesn't have quite the offense we've known it to have. And so they'll have to lean on the defense. You know, the, the one cool thing about the about the St. Thomas having to play freshman at wide receiver, this is what 
happens after you've had a few winning seasons and a few deep playoff runs. The type of freshmen you're recruiting, uh, they're still freshmen experience-wise. They haven't been coached that much, but you're probably bringing in better, better freshmen than you were bringing in four or five years ago. And so those guys, if they have to step in in a playoff game and they have been coached for 11 weeks now, uh, they're able to do a little bit of damage. And uh, I, I don't know how much of that game was a function of St. Thomas just being a, a, a better team from a better conference and, and St. Norbert not being able to match up with them and how much of that game was St. Thomas just being really good. Yeah, and it's probably a, a mixture of both. One of the things that uh, is also kind of beneficial for St. Thomas is, you know, there have been years in the past where uh, St. Thomas has, for example, lost uh, Fritz Waldvogel before a national quarterfinal game against Bethel back in 2010. And the drop-off from Waldvogel to the next guy down in the receiving game is, is just is, is, was, was staggering. This year, uh, there's a bunch of guys who are pretty evenly matched. You know, they can kind of plug and play a little bit. They have, uh, you know, they could get all these guys some work, and they don't necessarily uh, miss a beat necessarily. They've got, you know, they, these guys are pretty good. Um, you know, they get open against, you know, some of the lesser teams in the playoffs. They had some success against Bethel as well. Um, had some success in the passing game against uh, Concordia Moorhead as well. But um, you know, the, at least they're in a position where if they lose their best guy, and you know, I'm not even necessarily sure who would who I would consider their best guy right now. There's a, there's a second guy and there's a third guy who's there ready to step in. Pat, that was a big factor in the semifinal at Whitewater last year too. Remember Brian Borland and, and drew up the defense where they basically just, you know, bracketed, um, Wald Vogel, they took away everything deep with a safety over the top, then at a corner run underneath them. And they, they played, you know, they basically said, we're not going to let Fritz Wald Vogel beat us somebody else is going to have to beat us and, and St. Thomas didn't put up any points in that game and, and that was a big reason why um, you know they, they weren't able to move on to Salem and it, this is you know the difference between the type of teams you play in the first round and the type of teams you're going to play a couple rounds from now you know in theory and usually in, in practicality too they get better each week and so we'll find out a lot about St. Thomas and, and what kind of offensive weapons it has, how ready these freshmen and sophomores are, you know, this week against Elmhurst, because there's an opportunity for St. Thomas to do some damage against that defense. But they're they're also going to lean have to lean on their defense that the St. Thomas, I mean, is going to have to lean on that defense to try to stop Scotty Williams and that Elmhurst running game. And we have two games with pretty identical scores. Mount Union beating Christopher Newport 72-14 and Wesley beating Mount Ida 73-14. Yeah, and, and that's one of the unfortunate byproducts, I guess, of, of the postseason. You, you take the, some of the best teams in and you take some of the teams that, that won their conference and, and earn their, their chance in the playoffs. Some teams take advantage of that chance. Some teams, you know, it's just a complete and total mismatch from the, the very first snap. And that happens a lot for Mountain Union. Certainly happened before for Wesley. But I don't know if it's ever happened twice in the first round to this degree where two teams will hang, uh, you know, over 70 on another team. I know, uh, you know, Mountain Union was very clear that this 72 was their, their playoff record. For all the times they've scored in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the playoffs, they'd only hit 70 once before in a 70-30 game against Widener in 2000, I believe. Um, but in this case, they just they you know they weren't trying to run it up, but they, they they couldn't stop scoring. They had five running backs who scored touchdowns in that game, and and Wesley, you know, um, for that offense, which has has not been really great this season, but they've been putting up not great numbers against great teams. They're, they're, so they're, the, the level of competition that Wesley's played pretty much the entire season is so much beyond what Mount Ida brought to the table on Saturday. And, and I know that um, you know, Coach Drass respected the, the quarterback in, uh, in Scott Drosendahl and felt like they had to stop him. And, and Wesley does have a pretty good defense. And once they were able to get Mount Ida off the field a couple times, you know, just the talent level uh, of Wesley takes over in that game. Uh, what I try to tell people, uh, I hear – you know, not just the stuff that you know, people see in public that we respond to on Twitter but, or uh, on Facebook, but, you know, get emails about these things. Or, you know, friends of mine will, you know, know that I'm involved in Division Three football, maybe don't necessarily understand it to a, a real deep level. And I'll say, wow, 73-14, that's, that's just, that, that's ridiculous. That's, uh, that's uncalled for. And I got to tell them, I said, well, first of all, 
uh, in these games, you know, picture it like a 116 game, like the, you know, the kind of matchups in the March Madness that you were mentioning earlier. Um, you know, you could almost name your score as a as a as a top team in these games to a certain extent. But then every once in a while, you know, you're going to get dropped the ball on their 25 yard line. Um, and you've got your fifth string running back in the game and you hand it off and he's gone 25 yards to the end zone because, you know, you've got the you've got the last guy that you could possibly put in in the game and they still managed to score. You know, it, you, when you only have 58 guys on the roster yep. rather than 150, uh, there's not a whole lot you can do to keep from to keep from scoring if the other team can't stop you. Yeah, you, you hit the two major numbers. One sixteen is the great is a great comparison. That's something that people can get their minds around. That sometimes in the beginning of these tournaments in the first round, they're just mismatches. And the fifty eight is the other big number. There's only fifty eight uh, guys allowed on the playoff roster, so you can't empty the benches. And we've seen Coach Karras, uh, you know, do take what I would consider pretty extreme measures, kicking a field goal on second down so as not to run up the score. But uh, you know, when you get to that point. The number going going out over the the scoreboard may be less embarrassing, you know, the number that people see on the wires. But I think in the stadium on that day, if another team is kicking field goals on second down, I don't know. That makes me feel just as bad as if they weren't, you know, they're they're just saying, hey, we don't even want to try against you because we're trying not to embarrass you. Now, I don't know which when you get in that situation, just trying to preserve someone else's feelings. Does it does it help? You look at Mount Ida, uh, you look at Christopher Newport, they each had a certain number of seniors that were playing their last game. They're playing their biggest game. Now, they just want to have an opportunity to compete. At a, at a certain point in that game, they know they're not going to win, but at least you know, play hard and, and say, we, we went and gave it our best shot. Wesley gave it their best shot. Mount Union gave it their best shot, and their shot is a lot better than ours. Looking ahead to next week, of course, we've got, uh, we've got Thanksgiving holidays. Those of you who are traveling for the holidays, uh, we... Uh, Wish you safe travels out there on the roads. If you're traveling to a game, great. Hope to see you out at a game. Um, you know, so we've got uh, we've got eight games remaining. We have uh, the uh, number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and ninth ranked teams playing at home on Saturday. Uh, number eight, uh, for those of you who may not have the top 25 memorized, that was Cal Lutheran who got knocked out. Um, do any of these road teams? Have a have a real shot, a a good shot at winning on Saturday. You mean any road team in the tournament, or any of the road teams uh, playing against the the number one, two, three, four, or five top teams? I mean, obviously there are some teams that are going to have chances. I uh, to throw out the obvious ones you've already mentioned: Wittenberg. We've already talked about Salisbury. Uh, I think we can concede that those two teams have uh, have legitimate chances at winning uh, road games in their brackets. Um, how about the other six games? All right. Well, I think you're. Everybody has a chance because you're talking about good teams going against great teams. So you know, if the great team has an average day, turnovers, whatever, they got a chance. The game I think I would point to, of of, of if you're looking for an upset pick, would be North Central going out to Linfield, and I think that's a matchup of two programs that that I would consider the top handful of programs. But North Central can be so uneven at sometimes. You know, oh, you yeah. see them, you see them stumble. Um, in games you think they shouldn't lose, and then you see them turn around and play the game like like they did at Cal Lutheran, which Cal Lutheran is a team that played you know even game with Linfield earlier in the season. Linfield needed to kick a field goal to win that game, thirty three thirty, I believe, was the final very early in the season, and, and you see North Central blow that team out. You know you play transitive scores. North Central has a chance out at Linfield. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to match up that way, and, and there's so many other factors that go into it, but I think Linfield coming off a very tough first-round matchup against Pacific Lutheran and North Central, uh, this is going to be the third trip out to California in the past two seasons now, so the travel factor for them is not going to be... Right, obviously, it, Linfield's not in California, but just, you know, I'm I sorry, know you I'll, know that. Yes, out to the West Coast. They've, they've gone twice out to California, and then they'll, they'll go out to... Uh, Oregon. What I should have said was it's going to be their third flight out to the West Coast. And so for what is a, a complete uncommon occurrence for most D3 teams, North Central, uh, they got that all figured out. They're not gonna, that, that's not going to be a factor. Um, I think it's just which North Central team are you going to get? You know, Lin Linfield is a team that's capable of winning this tournament, and it's a team that could get bounced in the, in, in the second round here. So I think that's the game you, want, you look at if um, – 
if you're looking for an upset pick for a road team to go out and do some damage, um, there, there'll be some pretty great games, I think, all, all across the board. Bethel Oshkosh could be great. Hobart Wittenberg could be really good. Uh, you know, even even Cortland State, Wesley, you don't know, what, I, I don't know exactly what to make out of Cortland State right now. Uh, Widener Salisbury would be a lot of fun, too. So it, I, I think all around the bracket, we, we've got some great games, and that's the way it should be as we move on. The game should get better because, you know, you weed out the, the teams, the, the mismatch teams. And we will talk more about the games that are coming up on Saturday, of course. Um, we'll have triple take on Friday where Keith and I and Ryan Tips, our senior editor, will predict the scores. You'll get uh, some idea of what we think about those games uh, just by looking at, you know, do we pick high or low scoring games? Do we pick a close game? Is it a split decision? You know, do we all or do all three of us agree on a winner? Even that's not necessarily a, a, a slam dunk, as we uh, were reminded this past weekend. Um but you'll get a, a good I- idea of what we're thinking about then. Um, you mentioned don't know what to think about Cortland State. I'll be honest with you too, Keith. I mean, I know Wesley has played some great competition this year, but, you know, I'm not sure necessarily what to make of Wesley either. They have they seem to put themselves in a hole early in a lot of games. Obviously not the past two games because they've played really overmatched opponents in uh, Apprentice School and, and Mount Ida, but for most of the rest of the season, uh, they were playing from behind. Yeah, what's what's kind of under discussed, I guess, about Wesley is is their defense. They're pretty good defensively, and so when they get in trouble in, in a game early, they can I don't know if turn it up or or is the right way to say it. But you know they're they're a top thirty uh, defense scoring and uh, and yardage this season. And given the caliber of teams they played, you know they they you, you throw a Mary Harden Baylor. A uh, Louisiana College, Huntington, Birmingham Southern, all in there, uh, and Salisbury is another one that they played. You know, and, and to be a top thirty defense playing some of the teams that they played, I think is 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 impressive. And uh, you know, they 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 are able to shut down teams passing games. I think because they're pretty good, pretty solid in the secondary and uh, get a pretty good pass rush. So that could actually be one of the the sleeper games on Saturday as far as being interesting because neither of us know what to make of either of these teams because they, they've had some great games this season and they've had some uneven games. Wittenberg-Hobart. I know we talked about this game earlier and they're two uh, proud programs with a lot of tradition that haven't played each other um, and you know get thrown together by this uh, by this bracket. Um I'm, you know, half of me is tempted to go back to my, um, my mental picture of Wittenberg from a couple of days ago, where they're a team that's that's going to struggle on the road. Um, but you know, obviously, some of that goes out the window a little bit now, and you know, they're in a position where, you know, they're going to do something. They're going to go somewhere unfamiliar. But considering the teams that Wittenberg has had to face in the playoffs in the North Region in the past and even when they've had a team from out of region like Harden Simmons, you know, they're in a position where this is a very, uh, a very winnable game, a very attractive game for them. And uh, I, I think they have to, you know, look at it and think that uh, you know, they could be going to the quarterfinals if they win. Obviously they can go to the quarterfinals, but they have a legitimate chance. Unlike years where they might be playing Mount union. Well, I will say this: if if they get down at any point in this game, they're obviously going to have that experience from from this past Saturday to lean on. They they are capable of coming back, but let's not sell Hobart short either. This team has been fairly great defensively all season. hasn't played necessarily the strongest schedule and, and didn't have the strongest first round opponent. But I thought Washington Lee gave him a pretty good test. And uh, you know, as 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 I don't know if we've seen Hobart's best game. And, uh, you know, Wittenberg, I don't know if we've we, we certainly didn't see them play a complete game on uh, on Saturday. So if they put a put a, a, a solid, you know, 60 minutes together on both sides of the ball, they could they could pull this thing out, too. Uh, it's definitely one of the games to watch in the first round. I would probably lean towards Hobart if I had to pick. But luckily, I have until Friday to make up my mind about that. And uh, you'll see the, the triple take picks, as Pat mentioned. Uh, you're right, though. You know, you could see Wittenberg uh, playing uh, playing Elmhurst or, or playing St. Thomas next week. That just kind of blew my mind, Wittenberg-Elmhurst. Yeah, that's kind of why I said it, because <laughs> St. Thomas, we, we talked about a few minutes ago, they're one of the elite programs right now in D3, but at the same time, you know, if they're if they're playing with freshmen and sophomores in some of their key positions, you know, are they ripe for upset? Uh, Elmhurst, I think, you know, is defensively they don't they don't put up great numbers. They've been f- fortunate, is maybe not the right word, because they they earned 
a lot of these close wins, but they've they've pulled out of a handful of close games. Now we're looking at like five or six games, um, you know, but five points or less now with, with Elmhurst counting the three point win in the first round. So if they get in a battle with with St. Thomas, who knows? Wittenberg Elmhurst, that'd be crazy in the next round. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people are expecting, uh, you know, Linfield Oshkosh and Wesley Mary Harden Baylor and, and and Mount Union and and maybe Widener. Um, but you know who knows? You know that's the fun of it, and 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 that's why they play the games to lean on two cliches in one sentence. <laughs> well, I suppose that should uh, give me that, some indication that it's time to wrap this up. Exactly when you know it's time to wrap it. <laughs> when the cliche to sentence ratio gets above one, uh, for these two guys who are professional copy editors, you know it's time to go. So that's the Around the Nation podcast for the week of November 19th, 2012. I'm Pat Coleman. He's Keith McMillan. And the Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by the City of Salem, host of Stag Bowl 40. Tickets on sale now at www.salemciviccenter.com. Don't forget to stick around for everything else going on this week. We will have uh, Road to Salem features throughout the first half of the uh, f- first half of the week. We'll still do Play of the Week so if you have video from this past weekend, whether it's one of the 16 NCAA playoff games or even an ECAC Bowl game or the Victory Bowl, if there was a great play in the Victory Bowl, we want to see it because uh, we are still doing that. Uh, if you did a D3 report, hopefully you've sent uh, me the information by now, but if you want to do one next week, we definitely encourage that you do so. Bring a bring a video camera, bring you know a point-and-shoot, bring your phone. Phones do better than point-and-shoots at this point uh, in the history and progression of technology anyway uh record yourself talking for you know two to three minutes about the game about you know the atmosphere give us a look at what football looks like on your campus especially as we get into week 13 the second round the round of 16 of the ncaa division three playoffs that's the around the nation podcast wisconsin platteville that was a team i forgot you want me to leave that in yeah i think uh, if you make it that far you should get a laugh at the end right <laughs>